Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. 17, Revelation chapter 2. Praise the Lord. Trust you is able to pick up a uh, lesson study guide. Just uh, take a few notes. Amen. As we go along through this uh, text. Let's stand together, shall we? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. If you're there, say amen. All right. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, Balaam, excuse me, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Notice what Christ says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Father, thank you for your word once again this evening. Thank you for our church family that's gathered in person and online. I pray that your hand would rest upon us as we look into your word tonight as we continue to journey through the book of Revelation. We'll give you honor and glory in Jesus' name. All God's people say amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. We're talking about the church that Christ declared war on, and we're going to find out uh, a few reasons why. You know, one thing we find very clear in regards to these seven letters to seven churches is that not every threat to the church is external. Some attacks of the enemy come from where? Within. Everybody say within. Within. Now notice that on your uh, study guide. And remember, notice at the map, we're going in order. First we started at Ephesus, Smyrna, and now tonight we're at Pergamos, and we're coming around the circle, that red X is approximately the area of the island of which John was exiled. Now, we find out not every threat to the church is external. Some attacks of the enemy come from within. Now notice, typically 
It's not the external threat that Christ is most concerned about. Do you ever realize that? It's not the external threat that really concerns our Lord. For example, this, this is seen if we compare the church we study tonight with the one we studied in our last segment. Last time we studied the church of Smyrna, which was under direct physical attack from the enemy. Okay, Christ knew about their persecution. He knew about their poverty. And even knew that they were being blasphemed by false believers. I mean, no, everybody that claims to be a follower of Christ isn't always a true disciple, right? He knew there was more persecution to endure. We're talking about Christ here with the church of Smyrna. He knew about the plan of Satan to throw some of them in prison. He knew that some of them was going to even be slain for the faith. And so Christ reminded them that he had overcome death. I'm getting scared here, getting nervous. He had overcome death. And he asked them not to fear death either, but to be found faithful. Right? Now, Pergamum, however, is under not necessarily external attack, but is under internal attack. And they don't even realize it. But they were. And so Christ is, is about to show up, and he's, a, he's, he's telling I'm about to go to war. I'm about ready to go to war with this sword in my mouth. And as we see, Pergamon, notice on your study guide, is a church that has been invaded by spiritual terrorists. Hmm. Now, to clarify what I mean, all we have to do is revisit what Jude wrote in his epistle, Jude, like around verse 4, he records that certain persons have crept in the church undetected, unnoticed. And he goes on to describe them as nothing but spiritual terrorists. He describes how they have wormed their way in, they flatter, they lie, they deceive, they plot, and they plan just the right time and just the right location to detonate their bomb of deception that sadly can destroy the church. From where? Not outside, but from within. And Jude wrote his letter to say, Guys, you better wake up. You got to do something about these spiritual terrorists before their spiritual, brutal bomb goes off. Okay, that was the whole idea of Jude's letter. Now, here, Christ writes to the church at Pergamos essentially the same thing. Now, some have labeled Pergamum as the compromising church. And although compromise to some degree may be found, 
I personally don't know if that label, compromising, is the word I would choose to fit them. I personally would probably say naive. Naive would probably be my choice personally to describe them because they were so distracted by dangers outside that they grew naive to the dangers inside. Does that make sense? A Trojan horse had been rolled into Pergamum and no one was aware of it except for Christ and he was about to deal with it. He was about to go to war. Yeah. So, as we've been doing, let's look at six things regarding this church. Number one on your worksheet, simply called the church. And again, it helps us understand the dilemma of the church when we better understand the surrounding or the city in which they ministered or existed. Pergamum was not a port city like Ephesus or like Smyrna, but it was considered a great city of Asia. You, you would call Pergamum much more classy, more well-to-do. You know, uh, I would compare Ephesus and Smyrna, the two churches we previously looked at, I would compare them to Las Vegas. New Orleans. They're cities that have a reputation for immorality and sin and godlessness, right? But I would compare Pergamum more to a city like Boston. It was more cultural, it was more historical, it was more refined. It housed the great library of 200,000 volumes, which Mark Antony later gave to Cleopatra as a gift. The downfall, though, of the city of Pergamum was that it was, once again, it was, it was a loyal Roman city. It was, notice on your study guide, filled with Roman idols. 1878, Archaeologists with the Berlin Museum excavated the ruins of Pergamum. They've discovered a massive altar built to Zeus. The structure was a huge court in the shape of a horseshoe, which projected out of the mountain or the hillside, really. The columns were uh, rimmed, that rimmed that court stood 40 feet high. The podium for the altar of Zeus itself was 18 feet. And, and, and the base of the structure was 448 feet long. And on it was the carving of a, a battle between the gods and giants. And, and so from a distance, they said that structure looked like a massive throne jutting out of the hillside of Pergamon. Many believe that that was the thought behind our Lord's comment regarding the throne of Satan, the prominence of false religion and false worship and false gods. Still others believe his comment refers to the worship of another prominent god named Asclepius. 
as Cleopas. He was the god of healing. You've probably heard of medicine, the god of medicine. His temple served as ancient hospitals where people would, would gather and claim to be healed as they visited the temple of Asclepius. The symbol for him was a serpent wound around a pole. All right? Still the symbol of medicine today. And uh, people would enter the temple. And it says they would come and spend the night just sleeping on the temple floor where non-poisonous snakes were allowed to slither freely throughout the temple. The sick and the diseased believed that they could be healed if one of those serpents touched them. Now that right there would keep me out of the temple. Hello. The symbolism of a serpent would have been immediately connected by believers with Satan. They considered the worship of this God to be counterfeit, one that's counterfeit of God's healing power, among other things. And add to this the fact that one of the most common titles for Asclepius was, they called him the Savior. They actually called him the Savior. So it was a counterfeit false god whose symbol was a snake, whose name was a Savior. And Pergamum was also a Roman, like I said, loyal city, with, which was very close to what Smyrna was. And so when you put all that together, you began to understand that Pergamum may not have been as rough as a place to live for the Lord as Smyrna was, but it was just as dangerous. It was just as depraved. It was just as lost and difficult to minister in. Okay, so that's the framework for this church. Notice number two, their Lord. These things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Notice that. Here again, Christ is drawing from the vision that was revealed in chapter 1, and we looked at that earlier uh, in a few segments ago. Now, to Ephesus, you remember, Christ focused on his location. He said, I'm in the midst among the, the, the golden candlesticks. To Smyrna, uh, he, he mentioned how uh, it was the one he that was a dead, now he's alive, so he, he really focused on victory over suffering and death. But here he focuses on the fact that he wields a sword. Now, how many know swords are, are unique weapons? Swords are not tools. They're not decorations. They have one distinct purpose, and that's to take the life. And when Christ wields the sword, it is never against his church. It is only promised to be wielded against the unbelieving in the church. Okay? Revelation 19.15 reminds us that the sword from the mouth of Christ is always for the destruction of the wicked, not the righteous. Praise God. Right? Okay. So, Christ reveals himself to Pergamum as the warrior that's about to go to battle. Okay, so we've saw the church, their Lord. Let's look at number three in your worksheet, their success. Now, we say this because it's important, church. Broadway. I'm talking to Broadway. It's important that we understand how real 
these folks at Pergamos were in the church, how committed they were, how devoted they were. Okay, That helps us see how easily these dangers can happen to anyone and any church. Christ, again, starts with those all-important words when he said, I know. It again brings memories of him as our high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, can come to our aid in our suffering, and it's always comforting to remember that Christ is the one that gets it. Okay? And to Pergamum, he said, I know where you dwell because you dwell where Satan's throne is. And, and, and obviously what I've mentioned before having to do with the, uh, the temple of Zeus there and, and the throne idea, this, this we can see that Christ was actually calling Pergamus Satan's capital. Christ says that Pergamum is it's where Satan dwells. And, and, and how many know that's, that is to be seen with spiritual eyes? Others didn't notice that. Pergamum was Satan's hometown, so to speak. It was a capital city. Yet Christ said of them, You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was slain among you. One can only imagine the pressure to keep quiet about Christ if you're a resident or a citizen in Satan's capital city, right? One can only imagine the pressure to, to be pushed underground when the most faithful among you are rewarded with death. Antipas, Antipas was called Christ's witness and faithful one, most likely because he was so much like Christ. And the point is that the more you were like Christ in Pergamum, the more dangerous it became for you. Okay, If there was ever a church tempted to put their light under a basket, it would have been the church right here at Pergamum. It was not in your best interest to go around this city proclaiming the gospel. And yet the church at Pergamos did just that. They did not grow silent about the name of Jesus. They did not become ashamed of the gospel. Okay, they could not be bullied or intimidated or pressured away from Jesus. Okay, the church there understood. They embraced Christ and the gospel. And this is why I think the compromising church label is a little unfair. They were not noted for compromise when it came to the name of Jesus. Read the text. They were not noted for compromise when it came to the gospel. They were not noted for compromise when it came to being killed. This church was bold and faithful and committed and courageous. And Christ told the church at Smyrna, remember, not to fear and to be faithful. It appears that the church at Pergamon was obedient on both of those counts. Okay, They were solid and Christ is applauding them for that. Christ, how many know Christ loves a church that loves to proclaim his name? Somebody say, Jesus. Christ loves a church that loves to proclaim his name. He also loves a church that won't deny his name before others. Christ loves a church that chooses him over safety and comfort and convenience. Okay, well, the church at Pergamum was definitely commendable. So what's the problem? Well, while they were courageous to the outside threat... 
it appears that they were naive to the inward threat. Does that make sense? So now let's move to point number four on your study guide, their critique. And here the words of Christ become sobering. The phrase, but I have a few things against thee. It sort of gives me a mental picture of Christ going through an annual report with the pastor. Okay? He, he's looking at the report and he says, I, I see you proclaim my name. Good. I see over here that you keep the faith. Excellent. I, I see over here where you've suffered persecution. Well done. But he says, I'm seeing some things on about page three of this report that we cannot overlook. How many know this should remind us of the goal and the objective of Christ, and that is to make his church perfect, not just acceptable? If you read Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, you can't help but pick up some of the words that he uses and how he wants to describe his church. He says, without spot, without wrinkle, holy, blameless, right? How many's read those words before? You know, Christ wants Pergamon to be perfect, and she had an area where she was badly lacking, he said, you have here, okay, so here we go. Let's go into the problem. Okay, he said, you have here some who embrace the teaching of Balaam. And you have some that embrace the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Two issues. Notice on your study guide, the church at Pergamum have built a monumental defense against the influences and attacks from the outside the church, but she failed to recognize the attack that was being waged from within. They wasn't necessarily compromising, but they had been compromised. You get that? They were tra there were traitors in the midst. Christ would describe them as wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and, and would you expect anything else from a city where Satan dwells? I mean, after all, he is the deceiver. He is the schemer, right? And so while Satan had the church distracted by the attacks from the outside, he's managing to plant terrorists on the inside. You say, well, what did they look like? Did they have bombs and bullets? No. It was sinful influence. So much so that Christ compared them to Balaam. Now, let's recall who Balaam was. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament that was for hire. Now, that ought to tell you something right there. Okay? You could hire this preacher to say good things about you. And if you didn't like somebody, you could hire him to curse them. Hmm. You can read the story, Numbers chapter 22. When the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness, the Moabite king by the name of Balak feared that Israel was going to come and wipe them out. So, so the plan was for King Balak to hire preacher man Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel. 
Now, if you remember the story, Balaam asked God if he could curse Israel, and God said, no, you can't. So Balaam declined. Well, King Balak came back and offered Balaam more money, more fame, so Balaam goes back to God. Man, I mean, it's... This time, God said, sure, go ahead. But God planned to kill him on the way. Remember? Were it not for the world's smartest donkey? Hello. Balaam would have been killed by God. And again, when Balaam learned of God's displeasure, he did not curse Israel. However, here's what he did. He showed Moab how they could attack Israel in a more immoral and deceptive way. So in Numbers 25, the Moabites, they send out their women, presumably dressed rather seductively. And those women started inviting the men of Israel to come to their pagan feasts. Now, how many know, of course, a lot of Israel's men had trouble turning down a good feast and being invited by a flirtatious female? Hello. Israel's men soon participated in idolatrous feasts and fell for the flirty females that led them to fornication. And that infuriated God. Hello. How mad was God? Well, mad enough to send a plague after that and kill 24,000 Israelites. Hmm. He's pretty upset. We learn in Numbers 31, 16, that the Moabites got the idea of using their women to seduce the Israelitish men from none other than Balaam. Balaam was a crafty, deceptive, scheming man who did not attack with a sword. He attacked with deceptive influence. Where at? On the inside. Right? He didn't use fear as a means of accomplishing his goal. He used the flesh. Right? He infiltrated, he deceived, and he led God's people into the very hands of a very angry, judgment, judgmental God. Now, <clears throat> Christ says to the church of Pergamon, you've got some Balaams in your pews. Wow! Undoubtedly, they had some who were deceiving and were scheming and were pushing the people of the church into immorality. They were appealing to the flesh. And while the church was doing a good job at not denying the name of Christ, they were actually denying Him by falling into immorality. And Balaam went down in biblical history as the symbol of mixing immorality with religion. He gave Balak the formula that is still at work today in the church world. If you can't curse them, then you corrupt them. What Satan could not do from without, he did 
with success from within. Somebody say, God help us. Okay, so that's the reference to Balaam. Next, Christ goes on to say, you also have some who have embraced the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans taught that since God created intimate physical activity, and I am trying to be appropriate here, since God created that, a Christian in the name of Christian liberty could attend the pagan feasts and participate in acts of immorality and should not feel convicted about it. That's what the Nicolaitans believed. One historian said that that kind of, uh, here's what he said, said sexual purity was one completely new virtue that Christianity introduced into the ancient world. Demosthenes, the Greek orator who lived 250 years before John the Apostle, wrote this of their Greek culture, quote, he says, we have harlots for pleasure, concubines for daily cohabitation, and wives for the purpose of having legitimate children as well as managing our household affairs. Now, any Roman convert to Christianity would soon learn that what the culture applauds and promotes and sees as normal often invites the judgment of God. Wow. So we have this church that would not deny the name of Jesus but was falling on the inside or failing on the inside through this deceptive, immoral current and culture, and influence. And this had become a dangerous emerging thing that threatened, Christ said, the entire church. Wow. Okay, let's go on. We've talked about the church, their Lord, their success, their critique. Now, let's look at their solution. Number five on your worksheet. Christ said that the solution was simple. Somebody say the word with me. Repent. (laughs) That's it. The whole church... Needed to what? Repent. Wait, don't you mean that just the people who were doing the sinning needed to repent, Pastor? No. We're talking about the entire church needed to repent for allowing it and not dealing with it. Right? For example, let's use an example here. Uh, The church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 had some gross immorality in their midst, incest. And Paul told the Corinthians, you're arrogant, you're naive to think that you can let the sinners keep sinning in the midst of the church and that it's not going to pose a threat to everybody, right? That's basically what he tells them. Paul tells them the sinning individual must be dealt with. This is what Christ meant by repent. They had to repent of their arrogance. They needed to repent of their apathy. They needed to repent of their their willingness to overlook it. Okay, and to be honest, what a time. I I, I read this and I think what a timely word to the postmodern church as a whole today. I mean, The church culture has begun to misuse words like tolerance, unity, love, mercy. 
All of those things are good things when they are expressed as Christ expressed them. Tolerance and mercy is what keeps Christ from destroying sinners while giving them time to repent. Right? But he never intended either of of them to mean that sinners didn't have to repent. Another one, unity is what Christ expects from his church, but it was never intended to be achieved around a, a circle of iniquity involving false doctrine and practice. Christ intended for his church to be sanctified in truth and unified there as well. Love is, for example, the greatest attribute of Christ that we can probably think of. It is what motivated him to lay down his life. Right? But that love was never a love of sin. And it was never expressed by leaving the sinner in their sin. But today, too many churches are... You know, they got this backward things like church discipline is viewed as uh, as unbiblical when it... Did you know church discipline is expressly commanded multiple times in Scripture? It was Christ's very first teaching in regards when he mentions the church, Matthew chapter 18. I mean, Christ cares. How many know Christ cares about the purity of the church? And yet many churches today can care less, take it or leave it. They only care about being inclusive and non-confrontational, warm and welcoming, etc. Look, don't get me wrong. There should be no more welcoming body on the face of this planet than the church. Right? But that does not mean that Christ intended the church to overlook sin in order to make people feel welcome. Amen, Pastor. That's good. Thank you. Appreciate that. Now, if we are overlooking it, that's missing the very point for which Christ died. Christ here is commanding the church at Pergamum, fix the flaw in your church, in your system. Confront the immorality. Discipline the sinning ones. Expose the false ones. And because of that, we see how serious Christ was because now we move to Christ's ultimatum. He said, therefore, repent or else. Here's the ultimatum. Or else what? Or else I'm going to come to you quickly and I will make war against you or them with the sword of my mouth. When Balaam deceived the children of Israel, who was it came and killed 24,000? God did, right? And Christ was saying that is precisely what he's about to do. He wasn't going to kill the genuine believers in the church. He wasn't going to remove them from being a church, but he was going to come in and Slay those who threatened his church from within. He wasn't going to idly stand by and watch his church be destroyed from the inside out. The only way the hypocrites in Pergamum could be spared is if the faithful ones took care of the issue before Christ got there. 
Hello. And today, sinners are often left alone in the church because we, quote, love them and don't want to hurt their feelings or make them feel unwelcome. But Christ says that if you truly love them, you'll confront the sin and it will save them from certain approaching judgment. Yeah, and so the point is clear that God expects the church at Pergamon to deal with the sinful influence that's threatening the entire congregation. <clears throat> and if they don't, he'll deal with it. And if he deals with it, it's not going to be pretty. Right? The church, their Lord, their success, their critique, their solution. Finally, number six, their example. Again, we come to the application where he says to all these churches the same, he that hath an ear to what? If you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is saying. And now he goes on and he says, to him that overcometh. Overcometh what? Well, let's call it what Paul called it to the church at Corinth. He said it's arrogance. Because you won't deal with the issue. You won't deal with the individual in the churches. It's arrogant to think any church can survive while sin is allowed to exist in the congregation. And it's arrogant to think that leaven won't spread. Right? It's arrogant to think that disobeying the clear command of Christ regarding discipline won't have damaging effects. It is arrogant to think Christ won't deal with the church that won't deal with sin. And so we must overcome this, this arrogant mindset that thinks we know better than the Lord. That's what he was telling the church there. If Christ said uh, they must be disciplined, if Paul said they must be disciplined, then who are we to say they must be tolerated? See, and this is the arrogance that Christ is confronting here. In other words, he says, turn around, stop mingling truth with error because the two cannot coexist in my house. Because a church and a Christian is in deep trouble if he does anything with sin except deal with it seriously. A Christian is in trouble if he feels sorry on Sunday for what he did on Saturday, but plans to do it again on Monday. Hello. Somebody said that's not repentance. How many know we don't get points for going to church on Sunday? How many know we don't get points for going to church on Wednesday? Although I want you here, God knows I want you here. But the urgency of God's command is not lessened for people just because they clocked in at Sunday school. Hello. Repentance is the issue. It's priority. Because what is, somebody tell me, what is repentance? It is what? Changing directions. Yeah. And when Christ commands those who will make that turn and repent, he says, to him that overcometh will I, I give to eat of the hidden manna. And I'll give him a white stone. And in the stone a new name, which no one knoweth, save he that receiveth it. Now, Let's look at those. Manna, before we close. Manna, we know, is God's supernatural provision in the Old Testament, right? It was God's way of taking care of his people in a situation that seemed, seemed impossible. 
I mean, understand that when we obey God, he makes things work even when every scenario we play out in our minds seems like it won't work. That's the idea here. God has provision for the obedient ones. He's going to take care of you. Hallelujah. Okay, that's the whole idea, the manna. It's provision. The white stone. What's that about? That was unique to the Roman culture. The victors at the Olympic Games were awarded a white stone with their name written on it. That white stone served as their ticket to the award ceremony banquet. And so in this view, Christ is promising a heavenly award banquet, a.k.a. marriage supper of the Lamb, Hmm? I want to be there. And on this white stone that gains the believer entrance is a special new name. It's between the Lord and his servant. Christ is going to give every overcoming believer a special name. It will be a trophy of access into the banquet where they will be rewarded for all eternity. I want to be there. Amen. In closing, the call and the command of Christ is clear to this church, is it not? Church, you've got to overcome your arrogance. Be the church you're called to be, and I will reward you for it. Notice here as we close three warnings from Christ's letter to the church at Pergamon. Number one, do not be surprised by temptation anticipate it, even expect it. Number two, do not be naive in the face of temptation. Detect it. Expect it and detect it. The enemy has not really come up with any new game plans lately. Right? How many know he continues to use the plays that has worked the best over the centuries? Distraction and deception. Distraction and deception. Those are two of his best plays. Number three, do not negotiate with temptation. Fight it. Resist it. Sometimes the way you fight it is flee from it. Hello. Hello. Like Joseph of old, if you have no other option, go ahead and leave your coat behind and run for your life. Out the door, down the sidewalk, jump the bushes if you have to, get away. The church here is facing a crisis. The church holding fast to Christ holding fast to sound doctrine, but they had been compromised by the worldly ones that had come inside. And so the church is told, repent and remove. Remove the worldly ones from places of influence or expect the reality that the Lord himself is going to declare war on your church. We don't want to go to war with the Lord. 
right? We want him. And we want to most, most of all be on his side, the winning side. Amen. Lord, the implications of this text are far-reaching, very far-reaching. Certainly, Lord, as a church, we want to be the church that's faithful. Faithful in the midst of paganism. God, we don't want to be a church where people leave their first love. We don't want to be a church where people participate in the world and its corruptions. We want to be faithful. Oh, hallelujah. And so, Lord, as we conclude this evening, God, help us to be a church that confronts sin, deals with the sin graciously, lovingly, mercifully, but yet directly. God, we don't, we don't even want to think about the fact that you might come and make war against us because we've courted the world. May we be so distinct that it may be manifestly evident that we have been rescued from the world and all of its idols, rescued from all of its immorality and its corruption so that we can be a church for your glory and the gospel's good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen as we stand together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Go ahead and take a moment. Praise the Lord for speaking. He loved his church in Pergamos enough to speak to it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. What are we singing, Sister Jones? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, yes. May this be our prayer. Jesus. You gotta go. God bless you. You're welcome to take time. Let's come and pray before we leave. Make that your prayer, oh Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I love you, Lord, and your faithfulness. Let us be a church that loves Christ enough to embrace His Word. 